Hey, what's up, Jesuitical? Zach Davis here with a special introductory episode of Jesuitical. Wanted to bring you the first episode of the Gloria Purvis podcast. It's brand new. It's from America Media. You heard Ashley and I talk about it a couple weeks ago, and it launched today. Now, today marks the one-year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd, and Gloria has some really powerful reflections on that in the past year and where we're at now and where the fight for racial justice in the Catholic Church and in the country is going. Stay tuned for that. It's coming up next. And then after you're done listening, please go subscribe to the Gloria Purvis podcast. It's brand new. It's from American Media. There'll be weekly episodes coming. So make sure you go over and subscribe so you don't miss any of those. And then Ashley and I will be back in your feed at the regularly scheduled time this Friday. So we'll see you then. Welcome to the Gloria Purvis podcast, my new podcast with America Media. I'm back and I'm so excited to be here with you today to talk about the issues that matter to you, that matter to me, that matter in the world. And I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. And we can't miss the fact that we are launching this podcast on the anniversary of George Floyd's murder which I really believe is tied into my being here today. In Minneapolis tonight, tensions are high as four police officers have been fired after a man was pinned to the ground and Protests died. Protests demanding justice for George Floyd spiral out of control overnight. Good evening, everyone. A short message during these difficult times in the wake of the killing of George Floyd. I am saddened. I am sickened. I am angered. And I am tired. I'm tired of such things happening again and again. How long, O oh Lord, must we endure such things? Here is a case where white supremacy has cost someone their life. That's Father Eric Rutten. He was speaking to his parishioners in a video message shortly after George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis last year. Father Eric is on the ground in the Twin Cities area, ministering in a Black Catholic parish that was dealing with the trauma and the events surrounding the murder of George Floyd last year. We'll talk to him about his experience as a white pastor ministering to that Black Catholic community amidst all that trauma and pain. We'll also discuss the response from Catholic pastors across the country and what the church needs to do to help heal from this trauma. Stick around for that. So here we are launching this podcast on the anniversary of the death of George Floyd. And I've been through a lot over the last year, and I feel that a lot of the things that I have experienced have been directly tied to the death of George Floyd and my speaking out about it and my speaking out about racial injustice. And so I just want to tell you how I've been processing this and what I've been going through. And pardon me if it gets really intense, but I want to be upfront with you all on this podcast about what I've been thinking and feeling over the last year with regard to George Floyd and my faith and my relationships with people in the church and what I actually believe about the human person. And I remember distinctly watching the video from Darnella Frazier's Facebook page right after she took the video of those disturbing events, and I'm still not healed from it. 
I'm still not healed even after the guilty verdict. It was such a brutal, ghoulish event to witness. And I felt the desperation of the crowd. I felt like I was in the crowd desperate to stop the officer from brutalizing our brother in Christ, George Floyd. I was desperate to just beg him, in the name of God, stop. For the sake of mercy and all that is right, stop. But my words were in vain. My motions to try to pull the officer off of George Floyd were in vain because these things had already happened by the time I watched. And here I am a year later, still not healed, still wondering how could this have happened, yet knowing how it happened. We're in a fallen world. And so much was revealed in that time from what we all saw with George Floyd. I think our country has changed. I think our country is dealing with the impact of that murder being not only videotaped, but widely shared because it revealed to us the ugly underbelly of what so many in the Black community have been talking about for over a century, of how we are brutalized by the police, how we are targeted by the police, how we are abused by the police. And despite our saying this over and over, our testimony, people not believing. And so yet here we have the video. You would think that would be sufficient. And to on top of that, we have the pandemic that keeps us all at home so we can't look away. And yet... The response hasn't been what I thought it would be, particularly among Catholics. For me to see people that I know, people who are like-minded in the pro-life movement, believe in the dignity of the human person, you know, fighting to create a so-called culture of life, yet the way they responded to the brutalization of George Floyd shows that we have a different understanding of what it means to create a culture of life. I see their reactions to the guilty verdict for Officer Chauvin, and it's not the same as mine. You know, I felt some relief, like, oh, I didn't realize how tense it was, but also still I'm healing. These people feel rage that this officer was held accountable. They saw what he did, but for some reason, the ghoulishness of the act doesn't register for them. These same people that, like me, believe in the dignity of the human person don't see it in George Floyd. Why? Because they say his background, you know, that he did this crime, that he was on drugs. And I'm like, but we know as Catholics, that does not make him any less worthy of dignity and respect. Nothing that he can do will remove the imago Dei from him. He's made in the image and likeness of God. And yet we can jettison that, much like the very people that we say are abortion proponents and can not or will not see the child in the womb is worthy of dignity and respect, yet the same response coming from people who say they're pro-life has really been haunting me over this year. In addition to the, the brutality, the, the violence that was inflicted upon George Floyd in public, it reminded me of the lynching postcards that, you know, were so prevalent in the early 1900s to the mid-1900s the postcards where you would see people at the lynching of a Black person, or this person is hanged by the neck or burned on fire. And you see the crowd around them, including children. And a photographer would take a picture so they can memorialize the ghoulish event because the crowd was happy with what they did. So much so that they would mail the postcards to their families saying, this is what we did on Friday. Look at this, da-da-da-da-da. You know? And I feel like there's the same response 
from people who are pro-life in that they could defend what Chauvin did and be angry that there was any justice against Officer Chauvin, that he was held accountable for this because they said it was mob, a mob jury, you know, mob violence led to the jury, you know, letting this man pay the price for something he shouldn't have been having to pay the price for. And it just reminded me that they're just like the people in those postcards. And to have to sit and reflect on that, to realize that the sin of racism makes us all into ghouls, how much it rends the bonds of the human family, how much it blinds us to being able to see the dignity of other people, how much it robs us of being able to empathize with others. And that includes looking at Officer Chauvin. You know, I looked at him and I said, my God, help him. What happened in his life that he could come to this point to do such a gruesome thing publicly? Of course, yeah, we have to look at the culture of policing and the history of policing and how it conditions officers to have a different relationship with the Black community. But even still, Officer Chauvin, in a crowd of people, in daylight, people begging him to stop, people clearly upset, but he continued on. What does that tell you? about how destructive it is to have power over another person and not see them as worthy of dignity and respect. And that you have people encouraging that, I think, by the way in which they say he should not have been found guilty. What message is that sending to the future officer Chauvin's out there? That there's nothing wrong with killing a human person so brutally doing this to them. Unless over what? Supposedly a counterfeit bill. My God, what has happened to us? What has happened to us? Then I look at the response from some of our bishops. Yes, that was great. Some of them were out at protests because they're like, this is not the society we want that we should have. They do believe that Black lives do matter. How we're treated matters. And then we had other bishops that were more concerned over the response to the murder of George Floyd. We had bishops that were concerned about the burning of buildings. We had bishops concerned about the threat that Black Lives Matter was going to come and destroy the white Jesus statues we have. All that never happened, though. But that was their response. That was what preoccupied their minds, completely missing, completely missing the trauma that so many of the sheep were experiencing because of this brutality that was put on public display. We have a lot to atone for. And if we can't see that the centuries of many personal sins with regard to race are affecting us now, and that we have the responsibility to make amends and repair for the damage caused by those sins, I think we've forgotten what it means to be Catholic. And I'm not saying any of this is easy. I mean, I'm exhausted actually thinking about what has to happen. But at the same time, I am motivated by justice and love of neighbor to want to do something, to persevere and struggle, even if it doesn't get completed in my lifetime. I'm still motivated enough for love of neighbor and frankly, love of God to do this. Because as I think about this, the nature of all of sin is chiefly an offense against God who we love. And that love should motivate me to want to do better, be better, to make repair, to talk about it. Even when people tell us, you can't talk about race. You can't look at things through the lens of race. And I'm like, why not? 
If that was the lens used to inflict injustice upon us, why can't we use that same lens to see how we can bring justice? You all, we have a lot of work to do. I mean, mean, I'm even thinking of my friends and family, how they responded to the video because we were all talking. We were all collectively processing and dealing with the trauma of watching that video and being reminded in such a concrete way that this is our world. This is now. This is real. This is still happening. It wasn't that we didn't know it, but to see it on repeat over and over just nearly broke some of us. I had a girlfriend that we used to talk every day. She didn't know what to do. She felt a certain restlessness. She had to do something to make it better, make it better, make it better. And nothing was making it better. We prayed, we cried, we vented, and then we just accepted that this is the world we are in and we have to make it better for our children. And it seems like a daunting task, but dear listener, we must put our hand to the plow. We have to wipe away our tears. We have to manage our righteous anger and we have to stay focused on serving the Lord and bringing about justice and and right relationships. And part of that is going to be calling out the wrongness of things. Part of that is going to be calling out the brokenness that we see even in our church. And a lot of people are going to be uncomfortable, maybe ourselves included, but we have to go through this introspection. We have to go through this awakening to want to make our world a better place. I mean, that's what we're supposed to do is we say we're believers, we follow Christ, well, then we have to put our hand to the plow and start to do the work to make this world a better place for me, for you, for our children. And so one year later, I'm not feeling healed, but I'm feeling determined that more can be done, and I'm going to do that. And I hope you will too. My conversation with Father Eric Rutten is up next. But before we get into that conversation, I want to tell you why I'm doing this podcast with America Media. First of all, they aren't afraid to host real conversations about the most important issues in the Catholic Church today, the issues that both you and I care deeply about. America is committed to that. They do it every day, online, in print, in podcasts, in videos. It's a community driven by that core Jesuit value of meeting people wherever they are. And the best way to access all of that content and to support my show, the Gloria Purvis podcast, is to get a digital subscription to America. How do you do that? Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe. The link is in the show notes. Stick around. My conversation with Father Eric Rutten is up next. My guest today is Father Eric Retton. He's the pastor at St. Peter Claver Church in St. Paul, Minnesota, which is in the historic Rondo neighborhood. Welcome to the podcast, Father. Thank you, Gloria. I am delighted to be with you. I'm so happy you're here, too. I mean, we're talking, coming up on the anniversary of George Floyd. You are in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. Your church is in a historically Black neighborhood, the Rondo neighborhood. You know, I think some people question why we'd even have a church that's geared toward ministering in the Black community. And I understand that that is 
the purpose of St. Peter Claver. Could you walk us through that history of the church for St. Peter? Yeah, in the Civil War, our archbishop at the time, who was then Father John Ireland, got to know many of the black soldiers and uh, other folks. When the war was over, he continued to minister with them and wanted to kind of continue to develop their faith. And then at some point, he wanted to develop a parish for them. When he did that, he created a, a national church. So like there was the French and there was the Germans and there was the Irish. He created a black Catholic church and he said this is, should only be temporary. And the reason is that he wanted all the parishes to be welcoming and affirming and inclusive, engaging with our black Catholics. And that's 125 years ago, so it wasn't quite temporary. (laughs) Yes, I see. But we're still working on that, and our our parish hopefully is continuing that purpose, that mission to continue to invite the entire church to be open, welcoming, engaging of all, all of our Catholics. You know, I've heard a lot of pushback on having churches for the Black community. I've heard pushback that it's not Catholic. We're supposed to be one holy apostolic church and having a church as Father Ireland set up, people would say is not Catholic. What's your response to that? Well, the church also needs to be inculturated. And that's true in various countries and even in smaller groups throughout the world. We need to pray not only with our own language, but with our own culture, that we are embodied. We are an incarnational church and we are an inculturated church. So I do think that we do need opportunities. So for instance, here at St. Peter Claver, we do have African-Americans, but we also have Africans. Mm -hmm. So we have uh, once a month, a Nigerian mass. We have a mass for our Gizrite Eritrean people, a Cameroonian choir and Cameroonian mass. So I think there are times and places for all of that to happen. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, we should all be able to come to the cathedral here in St. Paul, gather around our archbishop and be one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Absolutely. Amen. And you know, the thing is, I was thinking about this, uh, Father Ireland didn't even probably realize at the time that he was paving the way for a Pan-African community right now in the 21st century in the St. Paul, Minnesota area. So he was way ahead of his time. And yeah, we still, I loved his sentiment, but we still need these parishes for precisely the kinds of moments that are still happening in our country with, as everyone knows, uh, the murder of George Floyd that was put on video and shared. So I really am curious to ask, take yourself back to around that time of May 25th, 2020. Tell me, how did you find out? Did you watch the video? What was your initial reaction upon seeing and learning about George Floyd? You know, I didn't hear about it the day of. I did hear about it the following And I did go almost immediately to watch the video, the now famous video, and I was just blown away. So egregious. You know, there are some times when we have to be cautious about a rush to judgment. But in that particular case, it was so egregious. Uh, I was was, it was so traumatizing. And I knew immediately that I had to do something. And we put together a quick video to just to say something pastorally to our parish community, because there's just a lot of trauma surrounding that event. So that was our our initial response, was just to try to speak out. And I think I remember saying that there was a sense of just being tired of one event after the other that just re-traumatizes and re-traumatizes. So just in, in just encouraging our community to hang on 
and hold on to each other. I think that's what I did. Yes. You know, and I have to say, Father, I talked to Black Catholics across this country, and that was not their typical experience Mm. in their parish Mm. of having their pastor address them. And I'm talking particularly in African-Americans that are not in parishes that have a significant African-American presence. They were not addressed. The idea that this was traumatic wasn't even really realized. And I know for some people, that was so draining in and of itself that it made a lot of people think about whether or not they were going to stay, not just with that parish, but with the church because of the that their trauma, what they were experiencing, what they were suffering wasn't acknowledged and it wasn't even shared that there were people who could watch that video and not feel the trauma that you felt. And when you expressed that in the video, I just thought, wow, this is something I felt like you were touching right there on the pulse of how I could say myself, how I was feeling. It was definitely traumatic. And what, I mean, what made you just be so present to say, you know, I got to get something out. I've got to do this video. You know, I'm very fortunate. I consider myself very blessed to be pastor at a Black Catholic community. And Pope Francis talks about this a lot, that we need what's called, you know, a spiritual encounter. We need personal encounter with people to really learn to love each other and draw closely into Mm. relationship. It's easy to be kind of numb, but when you know someone and they're your friend, then you begin to feel. And so that theology of encounter, that spirituality of encounter, the problem is we're so often siloed, segregated. um, And I think that that's a huge problem for our church. So Father, you have not been in a parish for like 10 years or anything like that before George Floyd happened. And for those listeners who are unaware, you are not African-American. You are Caucasian. And so how is your experience coming to the church as a person who is not Black, who is not from one of the African countries? How was your experience coming to the parish? You know, I came to the parish in the summer of 2016. And you can imagine there was some trepidation. uh, There was some, because it's just a different cultural setting. Mm. You may remember that that was the summer that Philando Castile was killed here in St. Paul. Yes. That happened Mm -hmm. in the early part of July, and I was pastor here August 1 of 2016. So that was my introduction (laughs) to St. Peter Claver. And it just tells you again how often these crimes, these traumatic events are happening. And it did. It made it very difficult to come in. On the other hand, it sensitized me and it drew me closer to people right off the bat. And I I think in some ways that was a help as well. So for those who are unaware, on July 6, 2016, Philando Castile, an African-American man, was fatally shot during a traffic stop by a police officer, Geronimo Yanez, of the St. Anthony Police Department in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. And this also was on videotape. He had a he, he had a license for a gun, mm-hmm. and he was telling the police officer it was in the glove box. And there were the police officer was giving him some directions, which he followed, and then Following those directions, he was still shot and killed dead. They had a trial for the police officer, and he was not found guilty. So that already had set the the temperature, I think, in uh, the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. And then you have George Floyd happening on video as well, and seeing how 
brutally he was treated. So you made this video, which I have to say, thank you. Thank you for your parishioners. Because even when I watched it, I just felt like, oh, yes, he understands. But then I want to know, like, how did your congregation process Mr. Floyd's murder? How did they process his death? It was, uh, as I've used the word many times, traumatic. So I think emotionally, there's an emotional and spiritual reaction. I think I said in the video, just a feeling of fatigue of the event after event, trauma after trauma. But what I remember is when the protests started happening on all sides, there was the peaceful protesting, there was some of the vandalism, then there was some conflicts happening. We really got caught up into, it got so dramatic here in the Twin Cities. Mm-hmm. And our community, it was almost like it, it, it turned up the volume past 10 to 11 on everyone's anxiety, their concern for w- where our country was going, where our world was going, all of that. Some of the vandalism and protesting was happening just literally three blocks north of our parish. And there was a gas station that's literally on our property line that was set on fire and the one across the street broken into. So it was right here in our neighborhood. And we at one point felt that we had to literally board up our church and Mm -hmm. such a terrible feeling, so contrary to what the gospel message should be. And uh, not only waiting for people to come into a church, but reaching out from the church into the community, that kind of spiritual dynamic. And you put boards up. It was just like a block in the middle of that. And, and so it was very dramatic and painful. I remember going into the church after it had been boarded up and there's literally no light in there. It was just absolutely dark. And it just it felt mm. so alien. It felt so. Well, to use a spiritual word, it just felt like darkness. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So it was it was difficult. Okay. So you're talking about boarding up the church. You're talking about the pandemic also having an effect. So that feeling of being separated and alienation mm-hmm. on top of dealing with the trauma mm-hmm. of George Floyd. I mean, how did you, <laughs> I'm thinking also, how are you handling all of this as well? Just spiritually, just yourself as a pastor. Yeah, you know, fortunately, we've got lots of wonderful leaders in the parish. So I was, you know, in conversation with lots of them. And so many amazing people just showed up, whether it's to help board up or to just check in on me. So that was really helpful. We were also starting to use Zoom, which I know so many parishes have done. And that was just an effort in the COVID world to keep us connected. But following the murder of George Floyd, we did call a kind of a parish family meeting on Zoom. Our archbishop joined us on that meeting, and we had a chance to share some of our feelings and concerns. And I think that was really important as well. I would say, and I think that was good that they saw the archbishop, but thinking about the fact that you were there in the city Mm -hmm. where Mr. Floyd was killed, what's your perspective on the larger response of the Catholic Church in the United States? You know, I think there were many Catholics that were speaking out. I I think the the bishops' conferences and and so forth were saying things. I know Archbishop Hebda here was very vocal in his response, but I I do think there were a lot of areas that were pretty quiet. And I know you mentioned this, that in many parishes, probably not much was ever even said. Not even even a request for a prayer, you know, kind of nothing. And, And I think that is scandalous. I think was such a violent encounter on video that to not speak to it really did a disservice to the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. 
So one of the things that I keep thinking about is it couldn't have been that just the Black community was traumatized. Mm. I mean, knowing what we believe and seeing another person murdered mm-hmm. on, on, on camera, mm-hmm. I, I just keep thinking, how could that not be traumatizing for everyone? Mm-hmm. But it wasn't. Right. And in fact, this, the responses that I started to see afterwards was shocking to me. It seemed to be you either, people saw themselves as, well, if I say something, I'll be considered anti-police. And I was like, that's not what this is about. And then we saw the responses to the uh, the the larger protests that we started to see happening, not just in the uh, St. Paul, Minneapolis area, but across the mm-hmm. country, then all over the world. And I saw within the church, within the discussions among people, a fear, number one, of those, of the protests, because then there became, like you said, you had to put the boards up. I remember seeing pictures of Catholic men with guns mm. standing outside their parishes. And I'm like, what are you, what are you doing? Right. What are you doing? What message are you sending right. here? But yet you, when you put up the boards, you felt instead, gosh, you know, we're supposed to be out in the community. So you didn't say, let's get armed guards or armed people to stand in front of the parish. What was going on there? Why didn't you have that same kind of fear reaction that you felt you needed to have people with guns outside the church? Well, I mean, maybe this is just my own interpretation of the gospel, but, you know, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. I don't, I I subscribe to nonviolence. I just think you, Mm. the more you show up with guns, you're you're just inviting an amplification of that kind of armed we're arming ourselves against each other. And I, I just, I don't think that's ever going to get us to justice and peace. I hear you. What, you know, one of the things I'm curious about is, did the seminary prepare you for this? I mean, did the seminary talk to you about how to go into communities where maybe you didn't have the same uh, background as the people in the community to minister, for example, in a Black community? Did the seminary prepare you for that? Did the seminary prepare you for dealing with Philando Castile, George mm-hmm. Floyd moments? in our community? It's a great question. I do, I do remember clearly there were uh, courses on kind of serving in multicultural context. Uh, that was part of our seminary training, but until you're actually in it, I mean, I, I don't think it's just a head thing. I think you really got to get, uh, again, I come back to the, the encounter that really to be with people. We all did some Spanish language immersion, but I don't know that there was any real training in terms of other cultures and mm, engaging that. Yeah. When I was named pastor of St. Peter Claver, the recommendation was that I take a special course down at Xavier University, uh, their Center for Black Catholic Studies. And they have a program specifically for new pastors in Black Catholic settings. And I, it was very helpful and, and just really, again, introduces you to the beauty and wonder of a whole culture that we were just not aware of, or I was not aware of. So I, I found it very, very valuable. But that that was outside of seminary. That was a, an extracurricular kind of thing. Hmm. Hopefully there will be more that can be done in seminaries mm-hmm. to make sure all priests are uh, trained in this way. One thing that also that has become a big talking point uh, are structures of sin, right? Systemic racism. But I'm finding that there are significant numbers of Catholics in the church in the United States that cannot fathom that a structure of sin, particularly systemic racism, can exist. But yet, I've heard you use the term systemic racism. Why do you think other people have a block and you don't? 
Well, I think many people, if you start speaking that way, they take it personally and they say, well, I'm not a racist or I'm not a bad person. I'm a good person and I love everybody. <laughs> well, sure you do. But like you said, there are ways that our systems are set up that work against various groups. And that's probably true in any institution. And it maybe cuts across not only race, but age and gender and a number of other ways. I don't think we need to take that personally. I mean, we need to do our own examination of conscience, but I think we do need to also examine our structures. And if indeed some of the ways that we're organizing our governments or organizing our other institutions, if we can see that they are advantaging some people at the disadvantage of others, just seems to me a matter of justice to resolve that. The other thing that happens when you come to a, a or when you start engaging in a, in a black Catholic community or a black community in general, is you will notice very quickly that this is not made up. It's not some people that just have a chip on their shoulder. Mm -hmm. It is everyone has experiences of this kind of systemic racism, structural white supremacy. And, and, and that's even a more powerful phrase, white supremacy. But you, you can't ignore it. You can't explain it away once you've been in a black community for any amount of time. Well, how do you, so that makes me wonder, how do you talk then to other priests about racism in society and in the church? I mean, do priests even talk about this? You know, when you're among yourselves, do you even talk about these issues? Well, I'm embarrassed to say if it does come up, people very easily and, and conveniently talk about the, some of the negative aspects of a political movement called Black Lives Matter as opposed mm -hmm. to our, our relationship in the gospel of Jesus Christ to be brothers and sisters together. And as priests, you would hope that they would go to the gospel. But quite often, everything is seen through political lenses. So when it does come up, people take ideological sides or political sides of the equation. And we're so polarized these days and so suspicious of each other and so afraid of getting into deeper conversations about why things are the way they are. It's a real problem. We have to find ways, I think, to deepen our engagement and, and encounters with one another, but also the level of our conversations. And can we can we really seek some common ground? So when it comes up, people are talking more about Black Lives Matter Inc., the organization and the negative reactions they have to that. Does it ever does any of it ever talk about focus in on police brutality, you know, murder of what we saw? of Mr. Floyd on video. It, it never focuses on that, always just on BLM? You know, unfortunately, I have to say that has been my experience. That's exactly right. Huh. Yeah, I know. It blows my mind. But I don't know what the block is. I don't know. You know, people, they do. They get very nervous about talking about police brutality. And here in the Twin Cities, we've been very vocal about defund the police, which I know is a whole nother hot button thing. Mm -hmm. So just ideologically, they go to the, the other side and they don't even, it's not even an open conversation about police brutality. Interesting. You know, I've, uh, I saw, speaking of defund the police, you know, I know so many people have been upset about that, but I saw uh, Dr. Cornell West on uh, television giving an interview. And he explained it so succinctly that defund the police, as he understands it, and as a lot of what I've been reading about the movement, isn't to abolish the police, but rather to uh, reorganize structures so that police aren't called for mental health checks. Police aren't called for those kind of encounters where we have seen people in mental health crisis in encounters with police die. So defunding 
to re- to fund areas that need more funds so they can deal with the public without having to bring the force of the police, bring trained counselors, bring people to engage mm-hmm. with these folks was part of the, uh, is what defund police was meaning. And I know that it has been such a touch point where people aren't able to talk. Mm-hmm. And I, I one of the things that I always think about as a, as a Catholic, as a believer, is, well, I do want to change society so that it better serves those at the margins without brutalizing them, without killing them. And it's unfortunate that the the phrase defund police, you know, people hear that and have a negative reaction because they think it abolished police. They also think it's people of a particular political persuasion. And yeah, you're right to how everything is so politicized and people step into that and let that be their their filter rather than letting the gospel be their filter. What advice though, Father, would you give to our listeners to be able to make that transition from seeing things strictly politically and and, and considering the gospel? Because clearly you've done it here. Mm -hmm. So what advice would you give? Well, you said the magic word is the gospel. And I mean, I really think we all have to dig into our faith and and in our prayer. When we encounter the Lord, I think that does open up less defensiveness and more openness to talk through these things. And I'll come back to the other theme I keep saying is we have to reach out and really encounter one another in new ways. We can't just stay in a, our own white suburban church. We really have to engage one another in bigger, stronger ways. It's going to take some courage and it's going to take some intentionality, I think, on all of our part. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Let me ask this. When the verdict came out and Officer Chauvin was found guilty on all three counts, what was your response to that? And then also, what was the response from your parishioners? I, I remember very clearly, because uh, I was watching it live, as I think so many people were. And, you know, you're just saying, please, please, Lord, please. And guilty, guilty, and guilty. And I just, oh, thank you, Lord. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, the most, the most obvious reason for that is we don't want to see any more violence in our streets or in society. The deeper and I think more important reason for the reaction is, I think the conviction says that we will indeed hold police officers accountable. And that accountability, I think, is so important. And it seems to have opened up a sense of hope among all of us that accountability can lead to real reform. When you mentioned my parishioners, Mm -hmm. I I would say the same thing. I mean, I'm, I'm hearing from everybody just such a sigh of relief when that guilty verdict was made. And I, I, I think it's for similar reasons than I just said, but it's such a relief. Well, I have to bring this up because I've also seen a different reaction right. among Catholics. People were angry. They felt that this was mob justice, that Officer Chauvin did not get a fair trial. I also saw people posting things like, imagine what would have happened if George Floyd had just complied. Mm-hmm. And I've seen this from prominent Catholics who, in all other spaces, identify themselves as pro-life and believing the church is teaching 
about the dignity of the human person from conception, from the moment of conception until natural death, but they have a disconnect at being able to relate to George Floyd as a brother in Christ and didn't receive that verdict with relief, with uh, thinking it was the right thing, but in fact were enraged and felt that something's wrong now. How would you address someone like that? I'm just curious. Well, I mean, you mentioned it very strongly that if you're going to be pro-life, I mean, that means everybody. (laughs) And that means beginning to end of life. And we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I don't know that it's our place to start saying when it's justified, when it's not justified. And by the way, I think there's a high bar for when something like that would ever be justified. This didn't come anywhere Mm -hmm. near that. So that's my initial two cents on it. And again, the other thing I would keep saying is when you begin to encounter people and know them and you really experience their their full humanity and it's I shouldn't even have to say that but it's really true you 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 begin to really understand people's humanity it does soften your heart and it does open up a whole different way of looking at people it's it's tragic that we we need to work so hard just to see each other as humans but we better do it <laughs> we better do it you know one of the things also as I don't think people realized or looked at Officer Chauvin as being destroyed, really, <laughs> in a way, by systemic racism, by a system that enabled him to treat another human being in that fashion mm-hmm. and not seeing that he's also, when we talk about systemic racism, we talk about structures of sin, mm-hmm. how the structures of sin enable people to behave in a way contrary to what God intended for that person and for the human family. And instead of seeing that and feeling sympathy in that way for him, Mm -hmm. to have the opposite reaction of being angry that he was held accountable for it. I even saw another very prominent Catholic point to Chauvin's response to being found guilty as, you know, he was calm and he stood and he placed his hands behind his back and, you know, he immediately you know, was accepting of whatever justice was, whereas, you know, they would say, see, George Floyd, why wasn't he doing that? So this kind of still blaming George Floyd, the murder victim, and at the same time, uh, lionizing, is that the word I want to use, or making like a hero out of Chauvin has been, something has been so shocking to me, not seeing Chauvin also as someone that behaved in a way that's beneath what he should have done. I just was wondering more if you could talk more to that as well. Yeah, I do think he also was a result of kind of his culture. And it's the white culture, but it's also the culture of policing in the United States, which I don't know all the details, but in my understanding, in the last 20, 30, 40 years, has moved more and more militaristic in its approach. And you talk about the thin blue line, more policing as doing battle with the darker forces of society rather than we're here to protect and serve. Mm. It's a very different perspective. Um, So yeah, I do think that Officer Chauvin fed into that particular reading or that particular culture, which is, again, if you're a Christian, you can't go there. You know, that's a, it's again, it's a failure of our own faith, our own prayer, our own spirit that we would end up in such a place. But I mean, we're all vulnerable to being pulled into hatred and even violence. We, we have to check our own hearts. But yeah, we're, we're, all, <laughs> we're all in this together. 
Amen. I think if we start to think about that, we're all in this together. I think we're going to have another momentous event happening in June when they do the sentencing mm-hmm. for Officer Chauvin to see what happens with the sentencing. I think people are going to be holding their breath for that too. Right. I know that they're all, he's also and the other officers now are going to be facing federal charges. And I know there's some people like, oh, can we just get over it? I think not. I think there was a reckoning that began with George Floyd for the wider community. Black community has known about police brutality and we've been talking about it for the better part of a century. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then last year, having Ahmaud Arbery in Mm -hmm. Georgia being killed by a gentleman who used to be a police officer and said he looked suspicious. So he and his son and another man chased after him with guns as if they had the right to stop a private citizen. Then you had Breonna Taylor in Louisville, Kentucky, where the police came in with a no-knock warrant and she lost her life. And then after that, George Floyd. So those three things rapidly happened February, March, and then May. Uh, really had the Black community, I would say, already on edge. And then to see the video, I think just took it to another level. But I don't think we are done. I think this is just the beginning of the kind of work that we need to do, the kind of conversations we need to have among ourselves as Catholics. I'm praying for our clergy that they will help to awaken the consciences of people who are asleep on this. Yes. Um, also to help people's eyes be open to the truth of structures of sin in our country and to also help people realize there's something we can do and not to be hopeless about it and think that, you know, it'll never get better. I think it gets better if we start to do something, but I think our shepherds are definitely going to have to do the work of helping the sheep, you know, recognize that, that there's a real presence of evil structures of sin in our country. And I'm not sure that the vast majority of them are equipped yet to be able to do that. Yeah, and I agree with you that the church has a really critical role to play in that. That is the purpose for shepherds, is to to preach the gospel and it, it, to call out injustice, to call out evil when, when we see it. Um, and if we don't see it, to point it out. I think you're absolutely right. If, you know, 50 years from now, if they're looking back and all they see was a silent church, that would it's just a great scandal. I'd say I do think it's a scandal. I'm praying for it, praying that we could do more about it. I'm praying that we will have the great awakening in the church that people say, you know, no more. We want better for our country and for our world. One of the things that I was thinking about was Pope Francis was very prescient when he said, we need to go to the margins. Who's on the margins? And imagine if we had already been doing that by the time George Floyd had happened. I think the church would have been in a better place to receive what happened and to be able to respond for all our brothers and sisters. Yeah, I think some people see it as a kind of a liberal move, but it's not just that. And it's not just Pope Francis. It's the universal church. It is the Pope. And it's also the U.S. Catholic bishops. It's to say that we as the universal church need to be as exactly that, a universal church. And really, if we have the heart of Christ, that means to reach out specifically to those who are on the margins. And if we're missing that, it's, it's, that's not just a feel-good thing. That's a core element of the gospel. And I think that yeah. would change the conversation about race. It would change the conversation about who we are as the church in the United States of America. Speaking of this reckoning on race, I know sometimes what people are unable to deal with is what I call the righteous anger mm-hmm. of the Black community in the face of all the injustices that we've experienced, not just one day, but for centuries. And 
So how do you deal with it? How do you deal with the anger that you may see coming out of within the Black Catholic community in response to things like Philando Castile, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, Sandra Bland, Tamir Rice. You know, I could go on and on and on naming these people. How do you deal with that anger that people may be expressing? Yeah, I think uh, particularly among white people, if they experience that anger, that righteous anger, the most often thing that happens is you discount it and say they're just making it up or they're just overly angry or whatever the case might be. And I just think that if you bottle that up, then it will explode. And Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. talked about demonstrations and expressions is is uh, sometimes if they if they turn to be louder and more aggressive, that's because we're not hearing them. Yeah. And so we need to hear the anger. We need to receive it and, and empathetically to let it touch our hearts rather than just simply discounting it. I think that's the first step is really a lot of listening. And I think that you'll, you will see that in pockets around mm-hmm. the country. Is in, and even the U.S. bishops did some listening sessions to try to do some of that. But boy, oh boy, we need to do a lot more of that, I think. Yeah, the quote from Martin Luther King was about the language of the unheard. Yes. He says, but it is not enough for me to stand before you tonight and condemn riots. It would be morally irresponsible for me to do that without, at the same time, condemning the contingent, intolerable conditions that exist in our society, which must be condemned as vigorously as we condemn riots. In the final analysis, a riot is the language of the unheard. What is it that America has failed to hear? It has failed to hear that the plight of the Negro poor has worsened over the last few years. It has failed to hear that the promises of freedom and justice have not been met. It has failed to hear that large segments of white society are more concerned about tranquility and the status quo than about justice, equality, and humanity. Still so relevant all these years. Isn't, isn't that something? It is. It's still very much on point. And we all often say, you know, if you want peace, work for justice. So you have to have justice. We can't just want a lazy peace where people like swallow it. We should be working for justice. And a justice that we're seeking motivated out of love for our neighbor as we love ourselves. And, you know, Father, I'm, I'm just glad that you and I were able to talk today. You were there, right there in the city. You are in the heart of what's going on in the St. Paul, Minneapolis community, in particular in the Black Catholic community. And I think not enough people hear from priests that are ministering in that community or how the community has responded to the trauma of George Floyd's videotaped murder that was shared. So I want to thank you for joining me on my podcast to help our listeners understanding what the mood was, what the feelings were, and what's necessary and needed for these communities to heal from this trauma. I'm very grateful for the opportunity. And yeah, thank you for the conversation. If you want to catch more episodes of the Gloria Purvis podcast, be sure to follow the show on your podcast app. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. I would love to hear from you. 
Oh, and by the way, you can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Sebastian Gomes and engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time.